Good morning and welcome to the Court of Appeals. Um, your panel today, uh, so I'm Chief Judge Donna Stroud. Uh, to my right, we have Judge Toby Hampson. To my left, we have Judge Fred Gore. And we have one case for argument today. Looks like y'all are ready to go. And uh, I think we normally have it set for five minutes rebuttal. Is that? That's yes. Okay. Thanks. Very good. All right. Uh, good morning, and may it please the court, Christopher Brooke for the defendant, uh, Michael Hageman, uh, Chief Judge Stroud, as we just discussed, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you for that. Uh, when executing a warrant, law enforcement must limit themselves to searching and seizing only so far as the warrant's particulars permit. Here, law enforcement did nothing of the sort, and the trial court endorsed them going even further. This court must reverse and suppress Mr. Hageman's substance abuse recovery program journals and all evidence obtained as a result of law enforcement searching them without warrant authorization. The law here, your honors, is not impractical, but it is exacting. When it is not clear whether papers fall within the parameters of a warrant, Law enforcement may only cursorily examine those papers to see if they fit within those parameters. If, based on that superficial examination, the papers do not fall within the particulars, then the examination must stop. That doesn't mean that law enforcement has to turn a blind eye to potentially incriminating evidence outside the ambit of their warrant. It simply means they need to seek a new warrant justifying the new search they wish to engage in before a neutral magistrate. The trial court and the state here define this cursory examination limitation such that it is no limitation at all. The trial court was clear on that point. It regarded as cursory an examination allowing law enforcement to look at and read, quote, anything that may contain a notation regarding a password, the search category upon which the state has principally relied throughout this case. This concept of cursory, anything that may contain a notation when looking for items that may be written down would allow for the intense examination of the diary in a bedside table. Every document in your home office, every prescription bottle in your medicine cabinet, every book on your shelf, and heaven knows what on your iPhone, all regardless of how unlikely it is that these items will feature anything in the warrant particulars. And all of this regardless of whether a superficial check reveals anything within those warrant particulars. The approach endorsed by the trial court and advocated by the state at the trial court level and on appeal reads cursory out of the cursory examination limitation. Well, where would we draw the line? When does an examination stop being one that is cursory? Well, I think that the Crouch case uh, is a case that's close to on all fours here, and I'll be the first to admit that the law is basically underdeveloped in this space of law. Perhaps that's why we're here uh, this morning. Um, but Crouch was a case that involved letters that were inside of an envelope. And it, law enforcement was not stopped from opening up that envelope and looking at the letters in the envelope. And it was deemed a cursory examination because it was immediately apparent the incriminating nature of the letters that were inside of the envelope. I think that that provides a guidepost here. It needs to be relatively uh, uh, immediately apparent that we have incriminating data on our hands for it to qualify as a cursory examination. And, and I'll turn to this in more detail here. 
reading the seventh and eighth sentences on page 38 of a journal is not in any way equivalent to opening an envelope and something incriminating smacking you in the face. Putting in the context of these journals, I think, uh, you know, and, and I'll, let me turn to the journals here for a little bit. I, I think, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but on that, on that question, um, and, and I guess in the context of the time frame of the Crouch case, yes, letters because of the birth of the technological age. Um, how, do, how do you balance the context of Crouch um, from letters to technology and people documenting passwords and things because, you know, we all have 50,000 passwords for 50,000 pieces of uh, devices or apps. How, how do you not get uh, to a cursory view needing to happen on every page to be able to look for the quote-unquote password? Well, Judge Gore, I think that's the argument that the state and the trial court have made here, which is that cursory means we've got to read every page to understand what's going on here. That reads cursory out of the cursory uh, limitation. I think in this instance, what could have happened and what would have been cursory uh, is you could have looked at the first page and probably examined that with some intensity um, to orient yourself about what you're looking at, right? And what would you have seen on the first page of these notebooks? You would have seen and it would have jumped off the page that these were substance abuse recovery journal notebooks. You would have seen step five in the journal in the car. What rev reservations do I have about working my fifth step? in the sentence, the first sentence answering that question. These are the first lines of the first journal, Judge Gore. I have already read part of my fourth step to my sponsor. And the journal, that's really where the rubber meets the road here, the journal from the house, is similar. Starts again at the top of the page, on page one, step three. Why is making a decision central to this step? And then it's dated 10-23. This, jumps off the page from page one that this is a substance abuse recovery journal. I think from there, law enforcement is allowed to flip through the pages to see if it's uniform. But Judge Gore, to the passwords question, when you're reading the seventh and eighth sentences on page 38, it strains credulity to argue that you're really looking for a password. You're reading sentences. So if you're, but if you're hiding, you know, obviously, you know, information from about the way that these investigations tend to work and how people do these things, which makes sense. Um, you know, they need to keep the information, but you're not going to necessarily make it obvious where you're going to find it, right? My, my father used to keep his uh, combination to his safe on page something, you know, of a dictionary that was on the shelf, you know, and where I knew where it was, right? Um, you know, but so in other words, you might have a, a lot of pages that are journal, but there might be something within it that is not. And Certainly. So how are the officers supposed to figure that out? Well, I think, again, to the, the point that I was making to Judge Gore, you can flip through the pages to see if it's uniform and glance at those pages to see if there's a password. But again, it strains credulity when you're reading the seventh and eighth sentence on page 38 that you're really looking for a password. Chief well, Judge Stroud. Sorry, I'll let you finish your answer to the uh, Chief. Your point about it not being in obvious places is, is well taken, but there has to be some sort of limiting principle, right? Because if you follow that to its logical end, then you literally can go to any book on the library shelf and just spend time with it and flip through every page because that would certainly be a non-obvious place. And what the case law said is that, and you know, Stanford, though in a somewhat different context, uh, basically says that's impermissible. That when you're just grabbing up every piece of paper that could be um, uh, in, a, in a theoretical universe responsive, then you've changed your particular warrant into something that's far more general in a problematic um, way. 
And that would be the point that I'm making here uh, about the argument that the state's pursuing on appeal, that this is a license to roam that they're seeking, and it's a license to make particular warrants into general warrants. Um, now, I've been sitting here, I actually thought of more questions. Um, but um, the first, I guess the first question is, is it, is it your contention that the notebooks themselves were so far outside the scope of the warrant. I mean, was is, is it your contention that law enforcement, um, the law enforcement officers, went beyond the scope of the warrant by even looking at those notebooks? Period. No. Okay. Um, so, and I'm, and I'm happy to amplify on that. No, 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 chance. no. That's, that's, uh, that's, obviously, you can look at the notebooks to and, and, and engage in a cursory examination to see do these feature. Warrant particular, and, and that might be a distinguishing feature between being able to search any book in a in a library, in a you know a personal library versus a notebook. Because here, while I understand there were there's some maybe factual conflict, I mean we do have evidence from the officers that that, that these types of notebooks may be a place where you know sometimes, commonly, often, depending on your you know, the characterization, um, that these might be passwords might be found. Right. right. I, I, I don't think that anybody, I think it, the, the parties agree that there is some testimony that notebooks can feature this sort of information. But the question is whether these notebooks do. And the more particular question is whether this was a cursory examination to ascertain whether these notebooks do. So, so if a law enforcement officer, hypothetically, had just said, oh, look, there's a notebook which might contain passwords, flipped to page 38 mm -hmm. and you know as a trained law enforcement officer like you know paragraph 7 8 line 7 8 whatever question 7 8 just leap off the page and you see that is that i think th i think that if magically that I is mean, what had occurred right if happenstance flipping through it and just happened to it, wait, are we 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 happen to glance down and and see something on sentence 7 and 8 of page 38 and there's testimony that that's all that is what transpired, then I think that would be a different case, right? What we have here is evidence that, again, the nature of these warrant, these journals announced themselves from the outset. And I think right off the bat, that is a warning signal to these law enforcement officers because it's impossible to imagine more sensitive documents. But, you've, but as you said, though, even once they, if they, saw the first page, recognize these substance yeah. use, you seem to have no issue with continuing to sort of flip through. Yeah, to, to glance through, yes. But here, and different than the hypothetical you've provided, um, they, the first page where I grant you can be more intensive with it announces itself. And still, law enforcement turns each page, looks to see what is on each page, takes note of what may be specifically on each page, takes note of the writings, on each page, and despite not identifying anything that falls within warrant particulars by page 38, they are still reading sentences seven and eight on page 38. There are myriad factual distinctions from the sort of voila, I turn to page 38 and my eyes just happen upon the prize, right? That's not what happened here and the journals sort of announced caution from the outset, and officers set that caution to the side. But then they, they did go back and obtain new warrants. The, those warrants, and I want, that was the next point that I was gonna make, those warrants undermine the state's case here. Law enforcement, they signaled that law enforcement knew that the substance abuse recovery journals did not fit within either the initial two warrants. Otherwise, it would have been entirely unnecessary to obtain a third warrant. And the state, in its brief, basically cedes this point, acknowledging that law enforcement appropriately sought and obtained another search warrant authorizing review of the notebooks after the initial search. Again, if these journals fit within the search categories in warrant one and two, warrant three is entirely unnecessary. But also, what is warrant three based on? 
Warrant three is based on, and this is law enforcement's word, the search of the journals that has already occurred. So the probable cause is, in their words, the impermissible, not impermissible, but the search that they've already taken forward. So it's but fruit of conduct, a poisonous if, tree. If, 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 you know, let's, let's just go with they, and during a cursory search, law enforcement and going through the notebook hap, happens upon sentences seven and eight on, on page 38, right? And they say, well, that, that, that's, you know, this is a whole new ball game. This is whole new evidence. We need to, now we need to go get a warrant so we really can search these notebooks. I mean, that would, would that be appropriate? I, I think that that, in the hypothetical that you have provided, which I want to, I want to underline the parameters that I understand it so I know what I'm signing on to, right. um, is that law enforcement opens the notebook and they open the notebook to page 38 and the first thing that their eyes fall upon is sentences seven and eight. So and then they say, whole new ball game, got to have a warrant. I think that that's, that is a, it's hard, it's impossible for me to argue. That's crouch, right? It's immediately incriminating. They opened it up and there it was, right? That's not what happened here. So let's say that they uh, only looked at page one, okay? And there was nothing, you know, page one just says, as you said, what I said, you know, nothing, nothing there that would be um, incriminating. Um, and they say, okay, now we're gonna go get a warrant uh, to read this whole thing, would you be arguing, well, they, sh they didn't have any basis to get that warrant because they looked at page one and it said, this is my journal that I'm you know, doing for my recovery and uh, why would you think there's anything there? Uh, Your Honor, it's, uh, and it, it's a good question and a question I anticipated. Uh, it's very hard for me to answer that question, right? Because it assumes a counterfactual where the probable cause basis that they bring forward in regards to uh, wanting to search what they acknowledge as a substance abuse recovery journal in this hypothetical, I, I don't know what that probable cause would be, right? I don't know if the law enforcement officers would be able to tell a neutral magistrate, we've seen these sort of journals before, and we know what's in these sorts of journals. Under those- I mean, Yeah, because you can't know, whether, especially a book that someone has done themselves, obviously, what they've put in there. It's not gonna be predictable, maybe like a regular printed book. That's right. That you can assume that it just continues with whatever is printed in it. But, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how would an officer, what would they do without doing a little bit more examination? Because, I mean, obviously we, we wouldn't, as you said, you know, this wouldn't necessarily mean that they could look at every single piece of paper or every book or every everything in his, that he has. But, you know, how do they go back and get a warrant and say, well, he wrote this and so maybe he wrote something in here somewhere on a page. I mean, what, what, well, I, I think law enforcement obviously has uh, you know, some level of experience and expertise and they could bring that level of experience and expertise to bear in trying to argue for probable cause. But that's what the law dictates in this circumstance. When you see something and a cursory examination does not reveal anything that's within warrant particulars, you're not you know, straightjacketed, but the response there, and this is a first principle, is you need to have a warrant and then you need to limit yourself to the warrant particulars, is to go seek a new warrant. And I think that there, it, I, I can imagine circumstances where law enforcement has experience with these sorts of journals, can make an argument that convinces a neutral magistrate in regards to probable cause. But again, and as I think you and I are agreeing, we're sort of in hypothetical land here because we don't, they didn't do that. They sort of had every indication that they needed to slow down and they continued to go forward. They characterized what they did as a search. And then, after they'd done that search, only then do they seek uh, a warrant. But, but the, I'm trying to figure out how law enforcement officers are, you know, how are they supposed to operate, you know, based on, on you know, what we say. Um, I said if they just look at page one, nothing there. Um, we'll say he's got a whole bunch of books. I mean, the very first, you know, batch that they, you know, they look at page one, nothing on page one of anything. Um, can they then go back and say, well, we found this whole pile of journals. Um, 
you know, that, other than that, that that's, you know, we looked at page one, it looks like journals. And uh, we, but we want to look at the rest of it just because we want to look at the rest of it. I mean, what are they going to say? Well, I think first I want to highlight a couple of things. First, from the first page, they would have known this is a substance abuse recovery right, journal. Right, I'm Second, yes. they can flip through, and I, I grant that it, is a, it would be cursory, superficial, hasty, to flip through the rest to see that it's uniform, right? So they would not just be saying, page one tells us this is a substance abuse recovery journal. They would be saying, this is a substance abuse recovery journal. And then I think that they would be able to bring their experience to bear and say, we have seen, if they have, these sorts of journals. Uh, we have seen these sorts of notebooks. And they oftentimes feature this, that, or the other. They could bring to bear and they could do research about what is in substance abuse recovery journals and say, this is our understanding about what, we're what questions are likely to be asked in a substance abuse recovery journal. That, given the background that we have on this individual, gives us probable cause to search. But again, so I think that there are ways that, that they could have proceeded consistent with the law that don't render it impractical to go in that direction. But again, the bottom line here is when you're principally lurking for passcodes and you're reading, and I'm going to keep saying this because I think this is where the rubber meets the road, and you're reading sentences 7 and 8 on page 38, you're not engaged in a cursory examination given the background that we know about what happened in these circumstances. I guess if, if taking that theory, say if we look next not just at passwords but notebooks sometimes where pictures are stuck. Right. It's a, how do we get past law enforcement needing to flip to every single page to rule out, hey, there's no, you know, everything's digital pictures now, but some folks still go to the drugstore right. and print them off. How, how do we get past them having to look at each page or flip through each page to make sure there's not a photo stuff? Well, and let me be clear here, Judge Gore. I think that they could, consistent with having doing a cursory examination, flip through each page. I think that they could turn each page and see if there's imagery that's stuck in there. Um, I, don't, I think that's totally consistent with a cursory examination. What isn't consistent is, you know, again, taking note of the writings of each page, taking note of what may be specifically on each page, reading sentences seven and eight on page 38. You don't need to do that, Judge Gore, to see if there's imagery uh, in the journals. And, and that sort of leads me to my final point. Um, the Supreme Court has said, and, and Chief Judge Stroud, you'll have to remind me, it says 7.30. Does that mean, is that my rebuttal time or is that out of 30? I should know the answer to that question. Um, yeah, that's, you're at seven, you've got two minutes until you hit your five. So the Supreme Court, thank yes, you. Uh, my apologies. That's okay. Uh, the Supreme Court has said that, that law enforcement must take care to assure searches are conducted in a manner that minimizes unwarranted intrusions upon privacy. That is true of all papers in the home. But it bears mentioning, and I've alluded to this, that it's in, almost impossible to imagine more sensitive documents than these. Again, plain that these are substance abuse recovery journals, but I want to put a finer point on this. This is a man examining his relationship with God and asking God's assistance. The first page of the journal in question features six references to God discounting questions about the role of faith. Prior to the passage on page 38, I count 15 questions referencing God. Let me give you some examples of those questions. How does my higher power communicate to me? What is the difference between my will and God's will? Have I ever believed that God caused horrible things to happen to me or was punishing me? How do I communicate with my higher power? What does it mean for me to turn my will and my life over to the care of the God of my understanding? 
How does my higher power care for my will and my life? Have there been times when I've been able to let go and trust God with the outcome? Do I have reservations about my decision to turn my will and my life over to God's care? It's axiomatic that there are grave privacy concerns and dangers whenever the government searches a person's papers. Those concerns are at their height when an individual is examining their relationship with God. So when reviewing the papers to close, law enforcement can only undertake a cursory examination to ascertain whether they fall within the warrant parameters. A cursory examination here did not indicate anything within the warrant parameters. But even as they knew, law enforcement knew, that the first warrants did not authorize a search of these substance abuse journals, that's what they did. In their words, they engaged in a search. So for those reasons, the journals and all information flowing from their unconstitutional search must be suppressed and the denial of the motion to suppress reversed. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the court. Zachary Dunn here on behalf of the state. The trial court correctly denied defendant's motion to suppress by finding that the search warrants at issue permitted inspection of defendant's notebooks. This court can affirm on either of two independent bases. First, this court should hold that the broad language in the search warrants permitted law enforcement to search the notebooks for items listed in the search warrants, including the names and addresses of minors depicted in defendant's child pornography and notations of any passwords that might have controlled any of defendant's computers or computer systems. Second, and in the alternative, it is undisputed that law enforcement is permitted to undertake a cursory examination of an item to determine whether that item uh, falls within the scope of a search warrant's parameters. And this court should hold that the law enforcement's cursory examination of the notebooks was permissible under the Fourth Amendment. Now it's important to note here, Your Honors, uh, that defendant does not challenge uh, the fact that the warrant was supported by probable cause or uh, that the warrant was sufficiently particular. Instead, defendant only argues and alleges that the search of the notebooks fell outside of the warrant's parameters. A, a review of the warrant application, which can be seen at pages 48 and 49 of the record, shows that the language of the items to be searched was expansive. Uh, it's not surprising that the warrant targeted computers and items related to digital child pornography because at the time that the warrants uh, were applied for and, and executed, um, investigation only revealed that defendant uh, had made available child pornography uh, for download. Um, but looking at the warrant application itself uh, on pages 48 and 49, uh, this court can see that really uh, the application was quite broad. It included at paragraphs 13 and 14, as I already noted, any and all documents and records uh, pertaining to the purchase of any child pornography, notations of passwords, and also at paragraph 10, the names and addresses of minors depicted while engaged in sexually explicit conduct. Um, and as uh, the United States Supreme Court has held in Brigham City, the touchstone of the Fourth Amendment is reasonableness. And so the question really comes down to, was it reasonable for the officers to believe that one of the items to be searched would be found in the notebooks at the time they searched defendant's car and home? And the answer to that question is yes. First, it's reasonable to believe that a person in possession of digital child pornography may attempt to conceal that fact by password protecting his or her electronic devices and then storing the passwords to those devices in an innocuous or otherwise um, hidden place uh, to uh, make sure or try to make sure uh, that the uh, passwords are not found and therefore the child pornography is not found either. Uh, and the law enforcement had good reason to search for passwords in this case because by the time they executed the search warrants and found the notebooks, they had taken possession of uh, defendants, some of defendants' devices, which were indeed password protected. So searching for passwords 
not only was it allowed by the explicit parameters of the warrant, uh, but it was reasonable for them to think uh, or, or to search for passwords to devices uh, to, to, to get more, more evidence. I, but I think, I, th I think the argument here, though, is, 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 is not so much that, you know, looking in the notebooks to see if there were passwords contained in there was, was what happened, but that once officers looked inside the notebook, recognized it was a substance abuse recovery notebook, that at that point, you know, sure they could have flipped through it just to make sure it was kind of consistent with that. But at that point, they were no longer looking for passwords and passcodes. They were, they were reading substance abuse recovery notes. Well, that's right, that's what they were doing. Well, as your Honor's question posits, of course, um, the, the defendant doesn't argue that the police cannot search the first page and then flip through uh, the rest of the pages to see if it's consistent. So. Uh, you know, the phrase that we've heard a lot today, I believe it's page 33, lines 7 and 8. So page 33, uh, because defendant admits that flipping through the journal each page is fine, page 33 really doesn't matter. It comes down to whether it was reasonable for the officers to believe that uh, something might, ha might ha be on uh, lines 7 and 8. And I think, uh, you know, of course it's not binding on this court, but we've cited in our brief, it's from the Second Circuit, the, uh, the Riley case. And I'm just going to quote it, allowing some latitude uh, to officers, quote, simply recognizes the reality that few people keep documents of their criminal transactions in a folder marked drug records. And that's exactly what we have here. It's unlikely that, uh, that um, Mr. Hageman would uh, place his digital child pornography, the passwords to those uh, uh, images, as well as any admissions that he might have to doing other uh, criminal offenses in a neatly labeled notebook saying this, you know, my crimes. Uh, it's more, much more likely uh, that a, a criminal defendant trying to hide his or her actions would put it in a place uh, that it's difficult to find. Uh, and so, you know, our, our primary contention here is the, the warrant uh, parameters were expansive. Uh, not only were the officers allowed to look for passcodes, but also the name and identity of any of the victims of the child pornography. Um, and looking through uh, the notebook was permissible, especially when testimony at the suppression hearing established, uh, and you know, there was different words used ordinarily, commonly, sometimes, that uh, notebooks such as these uh, would contain uh, items that were permissible to be searched under the parameters of the on the, on the issue of the hearing, was there any questions of law enforcement of how they actually reviewed the documents where there, you know, I think there was somewhere where there was a question of one of the detectives as to whether they actually read each page word for word? Is there is there anything in the record that supports your, <coughs> your premise on that? There, there are a few points. and. As I'm answering it, I just want to back up and say, you know, our primary contention is the officers did not have to take a cursory examination because the notebook squarely fell within the parameters of the search warrant itself. They were allowed to look at it whole cloth. But on the cursory point, there is a couple of places. Um, it happens in page 10 of the transcript and then later pages 33 through 35. Uh, Detective Reed uh, used the word glancing when he was talking about the notebooks. And then Special Agent Shambliss, I believe it is, uh, said that he would take note of what may specifically be on the page, and that he was primarily primarily looking for passcodes or keywords. And he also testified that he did not read the notebook word for word. Uh, so those really uh, are the only things that we have on that point, Your Honor. Um, <clears throat> but as it relates to your to your first argument, I mean you. You, you characterize the, the warrant as, as being broad and, um, and I, true, but it's also, there, there, is, there are limiting features to it, right? And, it's, and that's the relation of these, any documents or whatever, to child pornography. Right. So once, <laughs> you know, upon a, an examination of these notebooks, it's, um, you know, it, it seems, clear on its face that they're not directly related to, to child 
pornography, right? So, so, so why doesn't that then just sort of fall to your second argument? And the question is, was this a cursory review? You know, right? Because you can undertake a cursory review to decide whether this is in fact related to child pornography. Correct. Good. So what constitutes a cursory review? Reading every word on every page? No, I think what the officers did here would constitute uh, uh, a cursory review. Of course, you know, the, the only testimony we have is that they did not read the notebooks word for word, that they flipped the pages to see what was on them. Um, but, you know, really that's the only testimony that we have here. But I do want to make the point on, on the primary contention, Your Honor, um, that while these may have been, um, you know, primarily substance abuse journals, uh, that's not all they were. Uh, in fact, in, I believe it was the second notebook, uh, uh, Mr. Hageman admitted to a hands-on offense of, of uh, a child, and through investigation, uh, the officers learned the identity of that child. And, and when the officers came to her door and asked, do you know why we're here? Uh, she said, you're probably here because Mr. Hageman uh, um, sexually assaulted me as a child. So I'm not sure how uh, admitting to a sexual assault of a child is related to substance abuse. Uh, and so in that way, they weren't entirely substance abuse journals. Uh, and so one of the things, you know, paragraph 10 of Exhibit A, which is page 48 in the record, allows uh, the officers to search for names and addresses of minors visually depicted while engaging in sexually explicit conduct. Now, they didn't find the names and addresses of the minors in the digital pornography, uh, but you know, to that point, they didn't know that Mr. Hageman had committed hands-on offenses. And in fact, information in the journal directly led to the name and address of defendants' hands-on victim. But that's kind of putting the cart before the, the horse, right? I mean, they would not have discovered that if, if, if in fact the, the warrant was, did not, did not cover these notebooks or if, or if the, or if they had ceased a, a cursory search, I guess. Right. Uh, you know, going back to, uh, to reasonableness being the touchdown of the, the touchstone of the Fourth Amendment, it's really about whether it was reasonable for these officers to believe that one of the listed things might be, or reasonably would be in these notebooks. Uh, and as we've discussed a little bit before, we think the answer is yes, but another reason is, um, you know, Again, like we've discussed a little bit, although many, the first few or many pages of a, of a journal might be related to one subject, uh, an individual trying to conceal his or her crimes might place something entirely different later on in the journal. And, uh, and like defendant concedes, going through each page of the journal is perfectly fine for a cursory examination. Um, and so while they were doing that cursory examination, they discovered evidence of a hands-on offense and then, out of an abundance of caution, went and got the third warrant, which permitted full inspection of the journals. I guess what I'm struggling with here, and, and I might like to hear from um, I mean, Judge Brooke on rebuttal too, but what, is, this, is this not sort of a series of factual disputes and fact, factual conflicts that, that are resolved by the trial court in, it, in its findings of fact? Right. <laughs> Maybe you want to ask him because I think that helps me, but yes. Uh, well, I'm we asking you. I mean, I'm giving you the opportunity. To yeah, yes, Your Honor. I'm sorry. Um, we think so. Uh, and the trial court here, after hearing the testimony of the officers, uh, uh, concluded that this was a cursory examination. Uh, that's at finding a fact, um, I believe it's 24 and 25. Uh, now, the defendant uh, says that these should be more appropriately labeled conclusions of law. Um, but our contention is that these are uh, correctly labeled as findings of fact because um, they uh, asked the trial court um, to determine, uh, uh, and let me just quote from a case here if I could, it's the In Ray Helms case. Uh, it's a determination reached through logical reasoning from the evidentiary facts. And so the evidentiary facts before the trial court were, was the testimony of the two officers. And from those evidentiary facts, um, the trial court made the logical reasoning and concluded that the search warrants, or the search of the journals here was uh, cursory. And so we believe that that's a finding of fact that's supported by competent evidence and is therefore binding on appeal. So, I mean, if your honors agree with the state on that particular issue, I think we win on, on the backup cursory argument um, 
right there. Uh, but even if your honors don't believe that the findings of fact 24 and 25 uh, are binding, uh, we believe that they're correct, just based on the testimony from the officers that was before the trial court. Uh, you know, one uh, officer stating that he had glanced at the notebooks and the other one saying he went page by page, uh, looking at what was on the pages but not reading them word for word. Uh, so we certainly think that that's competent evidence um, for the trial court to conclude that this was a cursory examination of the journals, um, which all parties, I believe, agree uh, is permitted under the Fourth Amendment, even if the particulars of the warrant here didn't explicitly permit inspection of the journals, which, of course, is our primary argument. So was the third warrant necessary or not? We don't think so, Your Honor. Uh, it, we believe that it was of course done out of an abundance of caution. Um, you know, the defendant says it's, it would have been superfluous, so it kind of proves the point uh, that they um, knew that they were outside the parameters of, of their initial two warrants, but then uh, turned the coin uh, and says, you know, they should have read the first page and then gone back to a neutral magistrate, uh, explain what they had, and then search for a warrant, kind of having it both ways. Uh, we think you know, a cursory examination permitted the search, the, the initial search, and once they found uh, the incriminating statements, going back and uh, asking for the third warrant was merely a precaution uh, because the terms of the first and second warrant, you know, looking at, it's the paragraph 10, uh, 13, and 14, uh, permitted the officers to, uh, to do the search that they did here. But isn't, well, but in, isn't really the, the purpose of the, the third warrant to um, <clears throat> say, you know, listen, we, we were looking, the first warrants dealt specifically with child pornography, right, items related to that. In looking for that, we came across this evidence of, of another crime. Now, the third warrant would permit a, more de a, a deeper search of those notebooks to see if there was more in those notebooks related to that other crime, correct? Otherwise, we're, otherwise that first search surely was not a cursory search. Um, I think I understand your honor's question. Uh, yes, I, you know, once the testimony established that once the officers um, saw the passage of the journal uh, describing a hands-on sexual offense, that's when they stopped and got a third warrant out of an abundance of caution. Um, but the first two warrants um, the, you know, the items that were permitted to be searched under the first two warrants were broad enough to encompass these journals. So the fact that they found evidence of a whole other crime, I, I think just proves the point that, you know, getting the third warrant was uh, precautionary to ensure that it included um, all the other crimes, you know, the, the hands-on offenses that, that the defendant had committed. Um, I'm happy to answer any other questions your honors might have, but in the absence of any, I'll just conclude by saying, uh, for the reasons discussed today and in the state's brief, the trial court correctly denied defendant's motion to suppress, and this court should find no error and affirm. Thank you. Um, Your Honors, with the four minutes and 15 seconds I have, I wanna make, let's say five points, maybe four. So first, these were substance abuse recovery journals throughout. A cursory examination or a full-on reading of that makes that very plain. Part of Narcotics Anonymous is atoning for misdeeds associated with addiction. So the line that the state tries to draw there simply misapprehends what substance abuse recovery journals are, and I think that's something that you can take judicial notice of. That's not open to debate. Second. Um, they say now that the third warrant was not necessary, was precautionary. I would simply point the panel back to the response brief that speaks of the third warrant very differently. The state has totally changed their tune in regards to the third warrant between their response brief and their argument here today. Um, cursory. What? a couple of points about cursory. The state, as I understood them to define cursory, defined cursory as what happened here. 
That's not a definition of cursory. Chief Judge Stroud, you previously looked for and pointed to the fact people are going to rely on this opinion going forward, saying what happened here is cursory is not enough. You need to provide guidance. And uh, the case law, again, is very clear here. Crouch talks about immediately incriminating being cursory. As to whether cursory is a factual finding or a legal conclusion, um, what it, it, it's, a, it's a legal principle from case law, and what is that legal principle built on? Fourth Amendment case law, Marin, Coolidge, that, uh, Crouch, that we cite in our brief about why we have a particularity requirement to limit intrusions, to limit officer discretion. I would also point you to Hicks. Justices Scalia, O'Connor, and Powell have a robust discussion about what a cursory examination is. We all know that the Supreme Court doesn't have robust discussions about factual findings. They're having a debate about legal principles and what is and is not a cursory examination. I think Hicks makes that 100% clear. The final point that I will make, and returning to a point that I made in my original comments, um, they, the state argues that it was reasonable for the officers to believe the journals would include the warrant particulars. They define reasonableness, and I think you should be troubled by how they define reasonableness, is first, Mr. Hageman had passcodes. All of us have passcodes. My cell phone is passcode protected. That's not a limitation on reasonableness at all. They provide as you know, defining what's reasonable here, you could put passcodes in a difficult to find place. That's not a limitation in regards to the ability to search either. It's the opposite of a limitation. That is an invitation to, as I said, rummage through diaries, rummage through libraries, rummage through home offices, the medicine cabinet, your iPhone. Um, so they've not provided any sort of limitation there. They cite no case law other than like the 50,000 foot reasonableness standard, but the more on point case law that the state ignores points to a different reasonable inquiry in this context. It looks at whether the efforts to ascertain whether the warrant particulars are implicated by the, stock, the items in question were reasonable. And it says we're looking to limit intrusions into privacy, Coolidge. It says we're trying to hew close to warrant particulars, Marin. It says we can review materials to see if they fit in the warrant, but only to the extent of observing whether those materials are immediately incriminating. Crouch, for these reasons and others that I've stated today, this court must reverse. Thank you. Mr. Brooks, um, as we look at what is cursory, and then we look at the record to see if, if there's something that gives us you know, the breadcrumbs to get there, how do you reconcile the testimony, regardless of how you feel about what they actually did, because um, we were not there and what we have to go off is the record. How do you reconcile the testimony of the agents in the hearing, at least one of them saying what they did, I think it's Chambliss, confirmed that he did not read the notebook word for word and the other one saying that they, uh, they just, uh, I guess, scrubbed it or looked. So there's, there's testimony giving facts to lead to cursory versus what is believed to have happened. So how do you reconcile the record with what is being argued? Uh, certainly, uh, a, a couple of points. The first point that I'll make, Judge Gore, is the point that I made earlier, which I think cursory is a conclusion of law. The reason Justice Scalia, Justice O'Connor, Justice Powell are going on about this is they're trying to suss out the legal principle and then they're exercising legal judgment. Uh, that is, th those are the telltale indicia of conclusions of law. Um, but even if you disagree with me and think that it's a finding of fact, um, you know, certainly the fact that they didn't read it word for word is not determinative about whether this is a cursory examination. I would hope that something short of reading all 38 pages word for word could still trip over the line of cursory examination. And what we have here is, in the record, turning every page, looking to see what's on each page, 
taking note of what may be specifically on the page, taking note of the writings on the page, despite not finding anything prior to that, reading to the 38th page, sentences 7 and 8, and in the first journal, the 39th page, sentences 20 and 21. There's, e even if you believe it's a factual finding, it doesn't warrant deference because the testimony does not speak to a cursory examination. It speaks to an intensive uh, examination. I'll also note, um, uh, going back to the conclusion of law, Judge Gore, there are no findings in the trial court's uh, opinion, order that support the conclusion of law that this was a cursory uh, examination that occurred here. So unless there are uh, any well, further. As, so does it matter, I mean, this is probably a silly question, but like, you know, how, how well the officer reads or how quickly, I mean, I can't look at a page without reading all the words on it. I just, I mean, I can't really do that. Uh, I know some people, maybe some people read very slowly and they would have to examine each word. So what might be a cursory examination for one person might not be for another. How, how does, how do, is I, I think with respect, Chief Judge Stroud, that would probably rule you out from engaging in a cursory examination um, because it would mean that you were not capable of engaging in a cursory examination. Um, well, I'm pretty sure I am. But, <laughs> but take, <laughs> taking, taking your argument to heart, right? That if you cannot limit yourself from reading every page, then you can't comply with the law. Uh, well, from in like, looking at a page and seeing everything on it. Well, well uh, again, I think that you're able to glance at each page to make sure it's uniform, as we discussed previously. But, but that's not what was happening with these journals. There was an intensive reading. Now, this makes sense to close because I think it's where the rubber meets the road. Reading and not voila, just opening the journal to page 38 and reading sentences seven and eight but intensely examining the journal and then still being reading these journals at sentence seven and eight of page 38. Chief Judge Stroud, I, I, don't, I hope that answered your question, but um, if not, I'm happy to try again. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All, right. all right, thank you all for your arguments.